0: All emotion is good. Just feel it. And whether it's love, fear, anxiety, the idea is be present, feel whatever you're feeling, anger, joy, happiness, sadness, just feel it. Don't block your feelings, be aware of it. And then I think you can come back to presence. And that emotion also, I think is what makes entrepreneurship fun. The highs, the lows, cause even those years of struggle, there were tremendous highs and ultimately I do think that's what life is about. You feel really alive, but I think it's learning how do you do that in a way that's not self-destructive.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Godard, welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, awesome to be here with you, Jubin.
1: Are you welcoming me or am I welcoming you? We're in your beautiful home in Boulder.
0: Yes. Five minutes from campus. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming out. It's
1: amazing. We're at the family breakfast nook.
0: Breakfast, dinner. This is where we hang out. This is it. Is there a formal dining room too? There is. We I think we've used it twice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, good. I'm happy to be here. It's a beautiful, beautiful day in Colorado. Indeed. Unbelievable. Perfect. Look, I have a bunch of stuff that I want to cover with you. So for time's sake, I'm just going to jump right into it. I start pretty much all these things the exact same way which is that I'll read your background back to you. Tell me if I screw up. We'll go from there. Deal?
0: Awesome. All right.
1: You got your BS in mechanical engineering from MIT. Then you got your MS in engineering from MIT. Then you went to Stanford and got your MBA three years later. In between the MIT shift and Stanford, you were a consultant at McKinsey for three years. Then you went to Niku. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes. Good. Niku. You spent almost two years there. And I think in the midst of that, it IPO'd. The company IPO'd. Then CA later went on to acquire it, correct? Correct. Five years later. Yep. But not. that's not, you weren't there for that. No. And then you started Big Machines in January of 2000. You spent. 11 and a half years running that company. Then you went to Steelbrick in 2014. where the CEO of that company. CEO and founder or CEO? CEO. The founder was Max Rudman, the
0: CTO. And you came in with like five employees. Yes. Well, really it was Max and two that wound up staying. Okay. So it was a small team. It was almost no team. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> then Steelbrick ultimately gets
1: acquired by Salesforce within two years. Correct? Correct. You spend almost a year and a half as the SVP and GM of the Steelbrick BU, which then became the quote-to-cash type. Now Salesforce Revenue Cloud. Yep. Okay. You did that for a year and a half, and um, the startup bug reared its head again, and uh, you started G2 in May of twenty. 18.
0: Well, actually we started G2 even before I got into Steelbrick. Oh really? Which is part of the story. Yeah. For a brief period, I tried to be Elon Musk and I was CEO of both. (laughs) But then, because we actually started G2 way back in 2012 and it was kind of a slow brew, which is why we went to go to Steelbrick. But my co-founder, Tim Handorf, then took over as CEO while I was running Steelbrick. And then I came back So that was an interesting part of the journey as well.
1: What was your first
0: job? First job ever was... Like where someone like paid you to do something. Delivering pizza in high school. But I grew up near Pittsburgh and Tony Romo's. And I remember I worked for Tony. Interesting character. Or Tony Romo's was the pizza place? That was, yes, that was a pizza place. Not the quarterback. But that was my little suburban town of Swickley near Pittsburgh. And you ran cross country. I ran cross country, wrestled in high school, but that was my very first job. And it was interesting because I remember I'd be delivering pizza, but I'd also be hanging out with the dishwashers and it was actually a lot of fun, but like a very different world. And frankly, it does make me scared of Italian restaurants now because I would see sometimes what the kind of pre-chefs would do in the basement to some of the sauces. <laughs> but well, it
1: was a lot of fun. The audience knows this story about me, but in case you don't, my first job was a sandwich artisan at Subway. Hmm. And before I had anything on my resume on my LinkedIn, that was the first job that I put was Sandwich artisan. Mm. And I can't now walk in. And Subway has a
0: very distinct smell. Mm.
1: It's like the sugary bread, basically.
0: Yes. Actually, my kids love it. We always on road trips, we stop at Subway. Well... My kids won't love it because Mm. I can't, I can't, I can't
1: go in. I just can't go in. This is probably similar to your feeling when you go to Tony Romo's.
0: Yeah, scarred. (laughs) (laughs) You still run today. I do run, bike. I love Strava, but I try to post a Strava workout every day. When you ran
1: cross country growing up and then today, now, what do you think about? Does it, has it changed? I ask because... I run a lot. It's more for my mental health than it is my physical health, admittedly. And Mike Clayville, now the CRO of Stripe, and I were having this conversation and he said pretty much the best ideas he's ever had. Like he said, I think three of five came from his runs.
0: What do you think about? Do you think about anything? I don't listen to music and I read the whole book Born to Run, but I do try to make it more Zen and just feel whatever I'm feeling. And I have actually, some days I actually run fully barefoot, which is probably the most fun, because I don't even feel the ground. You know, in every step, the pavement is different, the grain of the earth. So I just try to let my mind essentially wander. It's almost a bit like sleep. You know, when it's really good, you just kind of get in the zone and just let the thoughts process, let the mind wander. And I do think like sleep, it is very restorative for mental health. And then afterwards, what I love afterwards, you just feel amazing. Oftentimes you get the endorphin high, and that's when I feel like I have my best energy and my best thoughts. And also that's when I can complete kind of maybe my hardest work tasks is when your mind is clear, your body feels good, you have energy, and you can go tackle anything. I think right after that run, right after that workout, that's Mm -hmm. what I love about it.
1: You mentioned Borden to Run. I've never read it. What's the takeaway?
0: It's based on the Taramora Indian tribe in Mexico. And it is this tribe of Mexicans that still, they live up in the mountains and they run 20, 30 miles just to get places. And I think we Americans, we tend to think of running, it's like, oh, it's a grind, it's hard, it's painful. We buy these thick shoes to protect ourselves. And they really look at the opposite. It's just a natural way of being. And that's really the title is, we humans are meant to run. Our anatomy is actually built for it. But rather than fighting it, just let it be zen, just feel it and let it flow. And I think from the book, and I, I actually want to go to this. I haven't gone to visit the Tarmore onions in the, Me- the kind, of, kind of the central lines of Mexico, but I'd love to. So cool. Yeah. I have heard that nothing that you do is in
1: moderation. So, an example of that is if you're thirsty, you won't have a cup of water, you'll have gallons of
0: water. <laughs> True. I like to drink a liter at a time. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm serious. That's actually how I try to start every morning, is with a liter of water. You just chug it? Yes. And I measure it. But, you know, and I think I just read there was a survival show. These guys, I think it's called Dude, You're Screwed. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But they, it's like these ex-military guys, they drop each other like deep in a jungle. And then I think they have three days. They win if they fi- survive and find civilization. But one of the guys on the show, I remember he's like, oh, you can only, because he couldn't find water for days. He found water. And he's like, oh, you can only digest or absorb a liter at a time. And so somehow in my mind, that's the perfect quantity, one liter per hour. So I like to start the day that way.
1: All right, a liter.
0: I actually want to spend
1: a fair bit of time on big machines. I'm fascinated by this story. And I think what I have learned about you in listening and reading a bunch of stuff is that you're very open about this experience. It was a home run in some ways and in other ways it wasn't. I think the way that you characterize it is it wasn't at least personally for you. And most people don't talk about that stuff. Mm. And so I've really admired and appreciated the candor in your reflections about this time in your life. And so I want to talk about it with you. And then we can go to the rest of this stuff. Is that okay?
0: Yeah, no, I'd love that. And it is all about grit. Yeah. That's why I love the title. But it was kind of a near death. What did big machines do? Big machines, and the goal was to sell big machines online. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was really inspired by my father. And my father was also an entrepreneur, actually took over from my grandfather. But my grandfather, right after World War II in Germany, started a pump manufacturing company. And when I think about grit and entrepreneurship, I often think of my grandfather. Wilhelm Abel was his name, but I think he started his company in 1947. And this was in midst of kind of post-World War II rebel Germany. And I think he was about 40 years old. And frankly, his whole life, The whole country was destroyed. And luckily for him, he survived the war, and he worked in the waterworks in Düsseldorf. He was a very hands-on engineer. Before World War II, he was in a merchant marine. So he was working on ships, working on pumps, working on engines in a very hands-on way. I don't think he went to college, but he was a very hands-on engineer. And then during World War II, they had him work in the waterworks in Düsseldorf just to keep the water supply running. But then after the war, my father was born in 1944. He was born on a farm. Because all of Germany, they were in the industrial northwest of Germany, but it was being bombed. And so they would send the mothers out to the countryside. And I was lucky for my father. He was born there. and But, you know, I kind of grew up on a farm. But it's like 1947, is rubble. And there's really nothing. But my grandfather decided he would come up with a new pump design. They were restarting the coal mines in northwest Germany. And he engineered a new better pump, a piston membrane pump that was better at pumping slurries out of coal mines. But he also had no capital, and so his brother was a sales guy. They started selling pumps, and then it outsourced all the manufacturing. But they started way back then, and then, you know, 20, 30 years later, they bootstrapped it, and my father took over, and we actually moved to America because my father wanted to bring, it was called Able Pumps, wanted to bring it to America. Pretty small company, maybe 100 employees. That's how we wound up in America, but back to big machines, and he made these big pumps. That's what they did, big machines. And when I was in the Silicon Valley, you mentioned I was working for Niku, very exciting entrepreneur, Farzad Debachi. Persian I was like gonna you. going to say
1: it has to be Persian.
0: Yeah. And he'd worked for Larry Ellison. And in that era, it was a dot-com boom. And I was at Stanford Business School first. And like everyone in my class, I think there were 40 or 50 startups coming out of my class of 300 because it was just so infectious. And the wow. dot-com boom, the internet boom. And I think if you had any entrepreneurial blood, you were going to start a company. And if you're going to Stanford
1: in 97, this is the gold rush yes. of tech. Yes. And you're in the gold mine. Yes.
0: And what was still, the internet was still brand new. The breakthrough company at that time was Netscape, funded by Kleiner Perkins, I believe. Which is just the browser. True. And that was Mark Andreessen. It's <laughs> just the browser. It was the browser spun out of the University of <laughs> Illinois. Yeah but it was the first browser. And obviously that was instrumental, right? Cause like making the internet, the internet existed in academia as at MIT, right? But it added the visual interface, right? The click, the browse, making it accessible for everyone. So it was a break, breakthrough that brought the internet to the masses. And it did create all this opportunity, right? And it was this heyday because everyone knew the internet was gonna change everything. And that's also what led to the idea for big machines because Thanksgiving 99, I went back to Pittsburgh to see my father. At the time, I think the Silicon Valley was called the reality distortion zone by many people because everything inside the valley was crazy and the internet was change everything. And then going back to Pittsburgh was kind of very sobering. And you know, I was talking to my dad about the internet and this boom and it's going to change everything dad. And, you know, but he was super skeptical and specifically I asked, started asking about his pumps and how's the internet going to change his pump business. And you know, he was just like, well, I don't think it. it's not because he explained to me, look, my pumps are very engineered. They're these big machines. And we need German pump engineers to generate proposals, quotes, orders. It'll never be sold like a book on Amazon. And Jeff Bezos was also the darling of that era. Mm -hmm. He'd started Amazon. But at the time, I think Amazon was just selling books and they were just getting into CD-ROMs, books and music. Mm -hmm. So my dad was like, look, there's no way I could sell one of my pumps like a book. right? It's not just a simple skew. You have to configure it, engineer it based on the pressure, flow rate, viscosity. And frankly, that's why I'd gone to study mechanical engineering at MIT. My dad, I think, wanted me to come into the pump business. I think I kind of put a chip on my shoulder. I'm like, if I ever do it, I don't want it to be nepotism. So I'm going to go get as well prepared as possible. You know, I understood the engineering behind it, but then you also had to configure different pumps with different materials, housings, couplings based on the viscosity, the pH of the fluid. But then the idea I had, I saw what Cisco was doing with routers or Dell was the most famous examples where tech companies were already selling complex configured products online. And Michael Dell was another star of the late nineties, but he'd figured out how to sell PCs online and you could pick your Dell Latitude choose your memory, your hard drive, your operating system, and behind the scenes there's this configuration engine that made sure all the components fit together. You can see your pricing in real time, you could order it and you could buy it online. And that was a big breakthrough for PCs and Dell was booming. And so the simple idea was, I convinced my dad is, hey, let's sell your pumps the way Dell sells its PCs. Let's create this online configurator, this online selling engine, and let's do it for big machines for manufacturers. But the big difference to Dell was my dad only had two IT people. And they were running a legacy ERP system called Abbas, but it was, you know, mainframe and they knew nothing about the internet. I don't think his company even had a website yet. And so the idea was also, let's put it, today you'd call it in the cloud. Let's provide all the hosting, all the internet infrastructure. And so all the company, like my dad's, would have to do, an engineer could log in. And then they could upload their own pumps, their own rules, and be up and selling online. That was the basic vision and my dad being very entrepreneurial, he did get behind it. I convinced him, okay, let's give it a shot. He became our first customer and our first investor. And wow. uh, this was all over ninety nine. I was still working at Niku and it was exciting to have Niku. Niku was getting ready to go public. Farzad actually been great to me. He made me general manager of iNiku.com. So I was running which was kind of his internet play. But then early two thousand, I got so excited about it, decided to leave and uh, focus on building big machines.
1: For some reason, where my mind went when you were telling this story is, not too long ago, did we just start selling cars on the Internet. It took till Tesla, really, in True. earnest, for us to have big machines in cars True, that were pre-configured, that people had trust, that they could get online. That was what, 2015,' 16. Yeah. 15 years later. Yeah. It took 15 years
0: for True. cars to even be, start being sold. True. And most cars are still not bought that way. No.
1: Only Teslas.
0: Yeah. And you're right. And I think, frankly, that was a year, we'll get into it, but that was a problem a year or two later because we were way ahead of the market. Right. This company, Big Machines,
1: it started in the beginning of 2000. You were 27 years old when you started it. You had raised $20 million. This funding environment, if I'm not mistaken, because I was not old enough to quite know exactly <laughs> what was going on, but this funding environment was not too dissimilar from what we saw in the last couple of years, where there's plenty of capital. True. There's plenty of capital. Yeah.
0: And if you look at the venture funding charts, I think a lot of the highs before the last couple of years were still from like 99 to Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> it's kind of scary. And so on the cap
1: table, you had your dad. <laughs> Who was customer number one? You had a bunch of famous VCs, celebrities. Mm. John Scully, who was the CEO of Apple.
0: Yeah, replaced Steve. And right? You have to be older, but in the 80s, and he's kind of infamous. Yeah, you know if you watch those old movies about Apple. Yeah, but he was actually Steve recruited them with that famous line because sugar water. Yes, because John Scully was actually CEO of Pepsi. Right, and then I think Steve and his board kind of became convinced that Steve needed adult supervision. I think he was still like in his 20s, and Apple was booming and bring in, quote unquote, a real CEO. And he went and recruit John Scully. Yeah. And they had a falling out, right? And ultimately the board chose to keep John, not Steve. But he actually had a good run in the 80s. He was like CEO of the year. He was there yeah. with like Bill Clinton in the White House, a very famous guy at the time. And he started an internet investment fund, probably like everyone else in the late 90s, you know, focusing on B2B internet technology. And actually the connection was his brother, David Scully lived in Pittsburgh, who was the president of Heinz Ketchup.
1: I don't believe in coincidences and it it feels a little bit like ironic foreshadowing the way that that story with Scully went down Mm. at Apple and what ultimately I think kind of happened at big machines. True. And we'll get there. But what ended up happening was, and correct me if I'm wrong because I don't want to rewrite history here, but your first year you got five customers. Yeah, it was probably about 10. 10 customers, one of which was your dad. Yes. And and a lot of money. A lot of money. And the ethos at the time was scale at all costs. Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a quote that I think Scully said, What are you gonna do when this company goes public in a year?
0: Yeah, well, that was his advice. I remember he came out, it was like, you know, we got our first office was in Foster City you know, in the Silicon Valley, and he came out and he recruited four young co founders and, and he came out like our first meeting is just like, Hey guys, he actually has his advice like just think about how you go public in a year. And actually that sounded awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd seen Farzad do it. I mean, Farzad started Niku, I think, the beginning of 1998. And he took it public March 2000 at you know, $10 billion market cap. And so, you know, it would grown to like 300 people. So at the time, at the beginning of 2000, that's what people thought was the playbook. Right. Was just go super fast. There was zero focus on efficiency. And frankly, it was a lot crazier than a year or two ago. Because now everyone has SaaS metrics and ARR. Back then, most of these companies had no revenue. And frankly, nobody knew, it was like selling big machines online, it was just ideas. And in hindsight, then people said a lot of these ideas were dumb. But I actually think all the ideas were right. But what you said about Tesla, it just took 15, 20 years to actually come to life. And obviously, investors were betting it was going to happen in a year or two. Right.
1: And the other thing that, if I put myself in your shoes at the time, there was no benchmarking. Because there was no tech companies that have built this type of motion before. True. You didn't know what best in class burn rate looks like. You didn't know what best in class net retention looks like, did well, you? Well,
0: nobody really, like I said, nobody cared about burn rate because for a while, capital was free, right? It was this internet gold rush and you could raise 20 million. And that's how far as I do this. You have a spreadsheet and then you're like, then you raise 40, then you raise 80, then you take it public. And you only, Niku went public, it was doing like five or 10 million a year in revenue. And went out at 10 billion? Yes. That was March 2000, that was the very peak. And frankly, it was losing a shit ton of money. I mean, if you looked at it today like any investor, I think the world's gotten a lot smarter and while there's a lot of money being pumped into companies at the core they tend to now have good unit economics and you know, and all of that wasn't known and for a while nobody cared. But then it flipped hard, right, because the dot-com bubble burst. And investors, it went from euphoria and we'll invest in anything internet with any smart team with a decent idea to like, and there were all these stories about Amazon going bankrupt.
1: Right, right. And Jeff Bezos sent a letter.
0: Yeah, it was like a credit risk. And frankly, that was really hard then because we call in customers 2001, 2002. And we were at the beginning, we were bigmachines.com. That was also the cool thing. And they're like, oh, you're a com," And quickly turned a dot bomb. And what was even worse, frankly, in hindsight, was actually going public. You know, because in the private markets, at least you can adapt, right? And you
1: have time for your revenue to catch up to the valuation. Yes.
0: And that was very hard time for Niki. You mentioned five years later they got sold, but then it went from like $10 billion to $100 million in the public markets. And then Josh Pickus came in as CEO and kind of cleaned it up. But five years later, it got sold for like $400 million. But that cycle was
1: brutal. The business ultimately ended up getting to $50 million of run rate revenue. However, in the first three years, it went from 10, then you added a few more customers, then it was a couple more customers the year after. Like it was a slog.
0: Yes, I think 2001, 2002, 2003, we added like one or two customers a year. And how many employees are you adding? And that was the problem. The first year we scaled up to 70 because we were following John Scholar's advice, just go public. And we hired a lot of young, smart, super motivated people, all these Stanford kids. And it was really exciting for a while, but then by the end, you know, by 2001, when it was clear as dot bomb, customers weren't buying. 9/11 happened. All of a sudden, it got really scary because our burn rate was way too high. And
1: you were probably burning like what million a, month. a million a month. And at this point, it's 2001. The tech market has evaporated essentially. Funding has completely dried up. Yes. And you've been playing musical chairs and there's no chair for you to sit in.
0: Yeah, we realize there's no market.
1: Right, (laughs) even worse. Right, exactly. So then in 2003, you're, let's call it 30 years old at this point. We were just talking about your wife, Stacy, who you married at 31. So you were, you know, engaged or preeminently engaged at this point. And the business had like a million dollars of cash in the bank is that correct
0: yeah that was kind of the bottom i think 2003 we were about a million run rate revenue and yeah we'd burned through 19 million had about a dozen customers a million in run rate and still burning and that was my co-founder chris schutz chris was my best friend from mit and when i had the idea for big machines after i convinced my dad i went out to chicago to see chris and he was working for a big manufacturer but he was the best engineer and my best friend at MIT. So he was the first guy I went to recruit. And uh, at the time, I thought, luckily, he said yes. You know? But then I remember and I, he came out to Silicon Valley with me. And it was all exciting the first year. And then by 2003, he outside had his first daughter, Maggie, who actually just graduated from MIT. And in the circular world, she's actually going to work for Tesla now. Wow. But he was also like, hey, he decided to move back to Chicago where I'd recruited him from because he's like, I can't buy a house in California. You promised right. me a big IPO. So he went back. But we kind of had 2003. He and I just sat down. What do we do, right? We only have a million dollars left. Do we just give up? And honestly, I felt super depressed because, I mean, I felt like a massive failure every day. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to lose my dad's money. I'm going to ruin my friend's careers, Yeah, you because know, not only did I recruit Chris, we recruited, like five, six other friends from MIT, recruited friends from my startup, Niku, and yeah, kind of promised all these people big things and big careers and big IPOs, and frankly, it was all just failing, failing, failing. You know, we let go a couple rounds. We went down from 70 to 20 people, and these were good, smart people, but we just weren't producing the business, so it just felt like, yeah, it felt all this anxiety and frankly, just failure, like, oh, man, you know, and that's frankly what I never wanted to be. I never wanted to be sort of the third-generation dumb kid that blows like what my father and grandfather had built. And I was like, wow, I am that guy now, right? I'm just failing. And I had all this anxiety and and I was really lucky that I met Stacy and that she kind of stuck by me because I think I wasn't totally present with her and cause I was just overwhelmed by anxiety. Like the whole company just felt like a storm cloud in my forehead that, you know, wouldn't and couldn't go away.
1: So you decide In 2003, we're going to not give the money back, and we're just going to keep at it. Yeah. We're going to lower our burn. What I find interesting, as I've heard you retell this story, is that you didn't do anything different in your mind. You just kind of kept going. And ultimately, the market, if I had to guess, started to catch up to you. You weren't so far out ahead of the pack. And... You went from zero to five million in the first three to four years in 2006. Then from 2006 to 2007, you doubled the business to 10 million, then you went to 18 million, 32 million, then the next year, 50 million. All of a sudden, it's working. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Start building the team back up. Why I say it's interesting foreshadowing what happened with John Scully, this story is insane, by the way. It's insane. You're still the CEO. What happened when you got to the, call it, 2009, 10 timeframe? 50 million, serious business. I remember this business.
0: Yeah. No, and it got really good because, you know, we were also doing that. I think the year we hit 50 million, we we're going to produce like 7, 8 million in positive EBITDA. Cash. Positive cash flow. So it was, in hindsight, the economics were incredible. But then, you know, by the end of 2010, we actually also approached that point in venture term sheets. There's like this 10-year redemption thing, or some clause you barely look at. You know, but it means like 10 years in, I think the investors, and this was like the deal with John Scully and others from 2000. But by 2010, we're like, oh, we need to and should offer them some liquidity, and we also had Kraft Invest, the owner of the Patriots. And we just had all these really long time investors and we're like, now the business is great. We should offer them liquidity to those that want it. So that was in the end of 2010, we decided to do a growth recapitalization. I didn't know how good the business was and hindsight is probably a mistake to even do that. But frankly, I also wanted liquidity because I've been grinding hard for 10 years. And Stacy and I moved from the Silicon Valley out to Chicago. Our twins were born. But we lived in like a small house in Deerfield, Illinois. This is the suburb where we put the big machines headquarters. And frankly, that's part of the reason probably we were cash flow positive because we are way outside the Silicon Valley now. We were able to hire, especially 0809 is great hiring. We were able to hire like University of Illinois engineers, really smart people for like $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And they were happy to have a job in tech. But frankly, also my co-founders and I, ten years in, Chris, were like, "Oh, we're ready for some liquidity." And I think those years, I remember our salary was like seventy-two thousand. Then I increased it to like a hundred twenty at some point. You know, but we had three kids and one minivan, and so we wanted some reward. That was part of it, and we wanted to give our investors a reward. So we did this growth recap, which was really exciting. But then we decided to recapitalize the company with Vista Equity and JMI Equity. Obviously, great firms. But it was also very, and I think at the beginning, they also told me, hey, we think you know what you're doing, right? I thought we knew what we were doing, because we did really learn. And at that point, we we got really good at selling this software. And the other thing we did really well, we partnered with Salesforce. We partnered with Oracle, because we realized, wow, if we can attach to Salesforce CRM, Oracle CRM, we'll have that credibility. Anyway, we figured out how to sell this, how to scale this pretty efficiently. But then, you know, we did the growth recap, which was a wonderful moment. I'll always remember it. I remember we were, Stacy and I were driving to Chicago with our friends, Jen and Rocky, like for dinner, it's kind of like around the holidays. And, uh, it was like December, 2010. And I remember it was like the moment first liquidity event, but all of a sudden like, wow, look at your bank account. Like it actually felt really good. And I remember we were driving into the city and the express line opened. And I said to my friend Rocky, wow, like. Feels like the, the seas are parting for me right it felt really good it kind of felt euphoric to like finally after so many years of struggle to like get a big reward for us the team and our early investors who wanted to we could sell and mm-hmm. everybody was happy but then i think i remember the first board meeting after that after that things started to change and frankly i was also i could probably handle it better today but at the time i was very like i also didn't really want to listen to advice yeah, an FU
1: mentality. Yes. Like I've gone through the valley of death. Yes. I came out the other side. I'm 31, two years old. Yes. And I've built a badass business. Yeah.
0: And then part of that mindset was at the beginning, I listened to John Scully in 2003 when we were almost dead. I'm like, I'm not going to listen to anybody anymore. Except for my co-founder, Chris, and my customers. And we're just going to do what we think is right. Yeah. Because listening to others didn't work. And from then on, we just did that. We followed our informed intuition and it worked. And so, yeah, I got kind of, I didn't want to listen to anyone. But anyway, we had new board members and some of them worked for really big companies like Microsoft. And they were like, oh, here's what I think you should do. And I remember we actually got like in kind of like a heated debate in the board meeting, but just kind of realized it just didn't work. And frankly, at the time, in hindsight, I was also burned out. You know, the investors wanted me to bring in like a president COO. And it was a co-CEO thing for a little bit. Uh, that was more of the transition. I think they just wanted me to bring a president, but then I was like, okay, awesome. No, like somebody can help me scale. But then frankly, what I realized
1: was... They were Trojan horsing just a regular CEO into the job.
0: Yes. Well, I was like, you know, I got introduced to candidate and I was like, oh, I was like, no, he's pretty good, but not the one for us. And then I was like, no, he is the one for you. And you didn't have control of the cap table anymore. No, we sold 51%. Right. So I knew that that was a risk. Right. But then ultimately just agreed. And it was very like tumultuous for me because my ego, my identity was so attached to the company and super hard, but ultimately agreed with the investors. Hey, I'll just step out because if I can't run it the way I want. What's the point? It's not even my company yeah, anymore. And frankly, and they also, it was kind of mutual, right? Because they're also like, well, if you don't want to listen to us. Totally. But it was very tumultuous for me. So after a quarter, we agreed and I, I did then and it was actually kind of, in hindsight, nice because I was burned out, but they then paid me for a year to be a senior advisor. They still paid me like the CEO while, you know, we ramped up the guy that took over for me. But it was personally very traumatic to then leave.
1: I've heard that the way it was characterized is that Big Machine was ultimately not acquired, but acquitted by Oracle. <laughs> that was funny. I've also heard that during that time, you're not kidding when you say you went through like the morning. Yes. My understanding of it, and tell me if it's wrong, was it went from 100 to zero pretty quick like where there would be days, weeks, months at a time where you just kind of sit in the rocking chair.
0: Yes, and uh, and I was, you know, I think my friends in Chicago didn't understand it because they're like, wow, you're really lucky. And we did, we bought like a nice house in Lake Forest, beautiful suburb, joined a country club, right? So, did that like-
1: make it worse? Because you're not like, nobody understood because on the outside, financially, this was a success. But on the inside, it was actually, it, they took away so much of you in that company
0: yeah no I think you had personal trauma and I think when I really realized it was with Stacy because you know that fall like our kids were young they were going to school and but I was like literally not getting out of bed even to get the kids up to school and I had nothing else to do and she was kind of like what's wrong with you
1: there's a quote that I want to read back to you that I read I was so often overcome by fear and anxiety that I was not present and available to connect during work meetings or family dinners and the kids' ball games. I was eating and drinking badly, not sleeping, just not taking care of myself. Worst thing is, I would sometimes be so exhausted, I would fall asleep during date night. In quotes, luckily my wife stuck with me. I was letting myself be controlled by my ambition, fear, and ego. It's pretty serious. Yeah,
0: and that's 100% how it was. And I do remember this, yeah, like being out to dinner with Stacy and literally like falling asleep. How long did that last? I mean, that was many years. Lasted for years. Yes. I think that was kind of a feeling of fear and anxiety I had probably for almost 10 years.
1: And during this time, is this when you found conscious leadership?
0: Yes. Towards the end of that time. And that was a big turning point where I joined YPO in Chicago. Once we started having some success, Young Presidents Organization which is the best part of it to me. They have these peer forums and they're groups of eight, you know, young company leaders in hindsight, it's kind of group therapy. And I was really lucky. I joined an existing forum in Chicago and this group, this forum had been working on conscious leadership. They'd met these coaches whom I then met Jim Dethmer, who became my first coach. And Jim has built a whole movement now around conscious leadership, around consciousness. And somehow, I think in hindsight, it feels divine, but somehow I met him. He facilitated a form retreat with us, with my peer group. And at the beginning, I remember I was like, this is all BS. Like, I don't have time for this. And I really challenged Jim. And somehow he put up with me.
1: I heard you got kicked out of the first meeting.
0: That actually, yeah, that came, I did get kicked out of a conscious leadership retreat. (laughs) And I'm actually, there's a book on conscious leadership. And they talk about a woman getting kicked out. That woman is actually me. They sort of, <laughs> like, neutralized it. But, yeah, I just, I was very resistant to the ideas at first. Because it felt fuzzy feel good. Yeah, and I was also, like, even, like, joining my team, I'm like, I don't have time for this. You know, like, I don't have time to go to forum meetings and conscious leadership. And then the thing Jim taught me, but at the same time, I knew there was something there. Because somehow I still, I was very resistant, but I hired him as my coach. I remember I, I met him for breakfast. And I'm like, okay, Jim, what's the ROI in your coaching? he just laughed.
1: What's the core tenet of conscious leadership?
0: It is being present. And the first thing he taught me, we'd start every coaching session with just breathing meditation of five minutes. And just doing conscious breathing. And I remember first doing it, I just felt like it felt very clearing, like the storm cloud went away of anxiety. But then I also just felt so tired. And after doing it for five, 10 minutes, I'd just be like kind of like sitting back in my chair and I'm like, Jim, this is wonderful. I feel great, but I could never get anything done this way because that anxiety, that fear was my fuel to just keep working, keep grinding. And once I went away, I just wanted to like sit there and do nothing or go to sleep once the anxiety cleared. And then Jim said, no, that's very normal when people first experience presence. And if you've been addicted to fear, anxiety, just kind of pushing, grinding yourself that way. But then what's been amazing, I kept working with them, kept working on I still work on it today, where you can kind of combine the two. And it is more like born to run. And you experience this, right? Some days your runs feel amazing. Like you're doing 630 miles, it feels effortless. And that's when you're in ease and flow. And I think the idea of conscious leadership is you can be that ease and flow at work. You can be in your zone of genius and great stuff's just happening, but it feels effortless and you're still breathing, you're still conscious and it's happening through you rather than, you know, by you, rather than you making some heroic efforts. Great stuff's just flowing through you. You're just channeling the love, the energy of the universe.
1: In some ways, when I was reading about it, because I use fear and anxiety to push me and I like it. It pushes me in ways that you can't make up. Yes. Can't manufacture that.
0: True. It's adrenaline, right? It's that
1: this fear that you have of generations of ables building companies and you carrying on that legacy. Can't teach that. Mm. (laughs) You can't teach that. True. And the way that I think about it is wielding that fire positively. Mm. Where it's very easy to burn things. But it's also easy to warm things up. True. And I think there's a really fine line that I always kind of oscillate between. More often than not, I feel like I burn things. Hmm. But I try to warm things up using that.
0: No, and I, I do think even in hindsight, I mean, it did keep me going. and even like my time at MIT, it it did give me capacity to go really hard.
1: There's no way you would have made it through those first three years without that, in my
0: opinion. True. Like I think if without the personal bond, I probably would have given up and you know hopefully gotten back to McKinsey, been a consultant. But yeah, I think there is positive and channeling energy. And I still have fear today, you know, running G2 now. But I think it's being able to put it in the context. But I think there is goodness in the fear. And that's also what conscious leadership teaches. Like all emotion is good. Just feel it. And whether it's love, fear, anxiety, the idea is be present, feel whatever you're feeling, anger, joy, happiness, sadness, just feel it. Don't block your feelings, be aware of it. And then I think you can come back to presence. And that emotion also, I think is what makes entrepreneurship fun. The highs, the lows, cause even those years of struggle, there were tremendous highs because when we would get that deal. And it would just feel like such elation. And then we would have amazing celebrations with the team. So there were also these incredible highs, these incredible lows. And ultimately, I do think that's what life is about. You feel really alive. But I think it's learning. How do you do that in a way that's not self-destructive? Because I was overwhelmed by the anxiety often. And then I do self-destructive things, right? Drink too much, eat too much, not sleep which would then just reduce the quality of my life, the quality of my relationships.
1: Having now started four companies and have built a coat of armor, do you still feel the highs and lows as acutely as you did?
0: I still feel them. I think it's probably not as acute. Now I can put it back into context, because if we do have that primal fear, and I think it does go back like what Jim Deathner talks about, goes back to our human survival days, right? where like the line is attacking you. And I think oftentimes we make entrepreneurship, we make life, we make our careers feel that way. But then I think what I've learned now is put in context, okay, I can breathe through it and the line is not attacking me. I'm not actually going to die. But I still feel all the emotion. That's why I'm still doing it, right? Because I think there's nothing like building with a team. Mm -hmm. And that's why even in that time I was depressed. And what was really different than deciding to build the next companies It came from a very different consciousness because I did have that year. I sort of wallowed in the muck for a while, and I'd actually recommend people do that. Don't go rush into your next thing. Feel that depression. Go to the low. And then eventually I came out of it because when Stacey asked me, like, what's wrong with you? Eventually I just kind of realized, wow, I actually really miss it. I miss the highs. I miss the lows. I miss building with my team. And then I really wanted to do it again, but it was from a different consciousness where and maybe I was also lucky because once you have some liquidity, like that financial fear probably is also just less because you have more. But I think it's more the mindset of like, oh, I'm choosing to do this. And that's been true for me ever since. Even now, it's like, it's all a choice. Yeah, you know, when I'm having a really shitty day or my flight gets delayed four hours at O'Hare, you know, it's just like, oh no, I, I'm choosing to do this, right? I am meant to do this. I'm building these companies because I want to do it. Mm -hmm. And then once you have that consciousness, it has allowed me to really enjoy it much more, to take care of myself and to still have the highs and the lows and have it with my team, but not have it feel so overwhelming. Why do you recommend that people wallow in it? For me, it was a lot of my problem was I was trying to block my emotion. I wasn't facing my fear. I wasn't facing my sadness. I wasn't facing my anger. And
1: by starting another company, it's very easy to just compartmentalize that thing and then use the company as your way of absolving that pain.
0: And I think a lot of it's habitual. You know, like I could have. I think someone is I could have run a second company also with the same fear, anxiety, da da da. But I chose not to.
1: Right. That makes sense. The next move that you make, and we touched on this earlier, is you don't technically start Steelbrick. you were like a founding team member and maybe there's no distinction i'm drawing one that doesn't exist why did you choose to go to an existing team that was there in place today with three four people not saying it was a established company by any means and pretty much no revenue why did you choose to do it that way
0: it was triggered and i left big machines and oracle bought the company mm-hmm. And so that's when we saw the opportunity. And frankly, I just felt probably the way I left wasn't the way I wanted to leave. It wasn't on my terms. So just wanted to do it again. And also the product we thought we could do better. But then when Oracle bought big machines that kind of put a ribbon on that and that was actually nice. We got second round liquidity on it and everybody was happy, including the investors. So, you know, it turned into a great thing in 2013. But then we also, I was like, wow, there's a huge market in the Salesforce ecosystem. And now that Big Machines is part of Oracle, they're not going to play well there. And we still saw a massive market and just wanted to do it again, wanted to do it better. And actually, I'd started G2 already. I started G2 first in 2012, and we were building that. But then once Oracle bought Big Machines, we're like, oh, we got to go do this again. It just felt natural. And I'd seen how long it took a Big Machines to build a product from scratch. Well, I'd seen at Dreamforce, I'd seen Max Rudman. He had a product called Quote Quickly. And he was building something very similar to big machines, but already building it for Salesforce on the Salesforce platform. But he was struggling. He wasn't able to raise money. He was bootstrapping and I admired that, but I also, there's another company Aptus, raising a ton of money at the time. So we're like, so anyway, found the technology met max. And then we just kind of said, we both agreed we kind of needed each other because he needed somebody that could raise capital, build a business, build sales, build marketing. He was a really good technologist, had a good product, but didn't know how to scale it. And so it just felt very natural. And we put in our own money first, funded it, gave Max some liquidity, but basically used his technology as the seed and then went to build steel brick. And, and that business was amazing. It's kind of everything The first 11 and a half years, 13 years, we got all of that done in two years because we brought over a hundred people. Because the reality was also, the other thing we realized, a lot of our best team members wouldn't want to stay at Oracle. Oracle's a great company, but so different from an entrepreneurial startup. Of course. So that was kind of the bet. The market was still massive, and we could do the technology much better, and we could take our best team members, and we could do it again on our own terms and shape the culture the way we wanted. And frankly, Steelbrick, it all worked just the way we wanted.
1: Took two years. Ended up going from five to 200 employees. Ended up raising... Almost 80 million dollars from folks like IVP Emergence, Shasta, Salesforce. is it public the acquisition?
0: I think yeah, it was uh, you know, 360 million. It's a good win for two years. Well, it was a great win for the team, especially, Frankly, like IVP Jules Malss who's now also an investor in G2, like it was way too soon for them, because it was somewhat a surprise because we raised I remember a Big Series C, and Salesforce Ventures invested, and at that time they were like, "Hey, no, we love you as a partner." And we were also going to build steel brick massive, you know, so then it was somewhat of a surprise. I met Mark Benioff a couple months later and that led to an acquisition much more quickly than we thought, but it was an incredible run and it was also really rewarding to be able to use everything we learned and, and just do it that much better, including doing it much more consciously because yep. you know, while we had a lot of ups and downs, but it was it actually in hindsight, I, I remember a lot more euphoric moments with the team and we were just winning. Every quarter we hit our plan, and we kind of did what VCs called a double-double. We took it from like 1 to 4 to 16 ARR, had like 130% net retention. Seems more like a triple-triple-double-double, double, but yeah. Yes. Yeah, I don't know what, what you guys call it, but it was just such a different experience from the first time. This was your redemption. Yes. This is your redemption,
1: and it gave you hope and faith that this entrepreneurship thing is worth it.
0: And I think I did feel like I had a chip on my shoulder, you know, even the first time being kind of pushed out by the investors and I didn't have nearly the impact Steve Jobs did, but I'm sure for him also, you know, coming back to Apple and kind of proving no, like I was the guy that does feel good. Well, I also
1: imagine there's probably some insecurity in the idea that your first three years, you didn't do anything different from your next three years at Big Machines and
0: you kind of start to ask yourself, how much of this is me? True. <laughs> you know? and That's more the consciousness. Yeah. Like I think detaching from ego and a lot of it, you realize in tech, I think the key is riding bigger ways, bigger markets. Cause you're right. The first three years of big machines, we worked just as hard, just as smart. Second three started getting better. The third three were great, but I did have that feeling like I'm doing the same damn thing every day. Like what changed was the market, right? And the readiness of the market but I was always the same guy. And you can't just tell the board the first three years, like, oh, it's the market. You can't
1: do that. Like, oh, the market's not right. Like, no one, yeah. no one wants and to hear that. And they
0: saw it, and then they got bored, frankly. They just kind of stopped showing up for meetings at some point, right? They're like, oh, this thing is sort of a write-off, right? And it's not worth our time anymore. They just kind of stopped caring. And they weren't too mad in the sense, like, oh, the whole internet thing kind of melted down, right? And- do you remember the ways
1: that people treated you? in the down days versus the up days?
0: Yeah, I mean, it is kind of weird because now people are like, oh, like you're so smart. They come to interview you, all of that, you know? And, and nobody did that when we were struggling. But what is weird, I mean, like I'm the same person. Right. <laughs> but I'm also realizing, and you do see like some entrepreneurs kind of change, like I've seen this, right? And where you kind of maybe get filled with hubris. But the good thing about entrepreneurship i think it always brings your ego back in check because you always have the next crisis and you think you've had it all figured out you really don't right but i think it's a great vehicle just for human growth because i think that's true in life and that's what i love about conscious leadership and i still love learning growing i work with a coach now Sue brunner and so i'm very much a work in progress and always have been i've heard you say whenever i find myself
1: between business ventures i feel like i flatline I miss the highs. I miss the lows. I even miss the WFIO moments, which I think is a Ben Horowitz quote, which is, we're f***ed, it's over. Right.
0: With EO, I think they With EO. What do you mean by that? Well, I do think, and I worked at Salesforce, as you mentioned, for a year and a half, in an incredible company.
1: After the acquisition of Steelbrick. Yes. Yep.
0: And, uh, you know, I admire Mark Benioff, brilliant CEO, just his Impact, Salesforce and beyond. But I realized, like, honestly, I felt flatlined. Like after a few quarters working at Salesforce, it was kind of similar, and I was going up to San Francisco, we're living in Palo Alto, but I just I felt like it was a job. Kind of started that feeling, again. You know, it's kind of hard to get out of bed, and oh, I gotta to go to that meeting at nine, And but it felt like I had to. Mm-hmm. And then when I was honest with myself, and I had like a three-year vest, and I wanted up walking away from a lot of it, because it was like, I was just going really, at some point, and the first few quarters were exciting, but at some point it just became, I'm just going there for the money. Like, I'm not going there because I love it anymore. And once I realized that, and I talked to my boss, Mike Rosenbaum, great guy, and I just told him, like, hey, I just want to go do entrepreneurial things again because I, that's just what I love doing. Because that's very different. When I'm building entrepreneurial venture, honestly, day to day, I'm never thinking about the money. Like, It doesn't feel like a job. It just feels like what I want to, what I'm meant to do.
1: This is a weird question. How often are you happy? On a given week, if you had to quantify it, it's a pretty tough question, but, like, on a percentage basis, what percentage of a given week is your, like, current state positive or happy?
0: Yeah, and I'm happy right now. Yeah. Happy being here with Me you. Me too, man. And, uh, and actually, my coach, Jim Dethmer, he asked this question. We have him speak at our kickoff this year, company kickoff, about inspiring love. You know, but he kind of talks about, like, what percent of your time are you in your zone of Greatness. genius, yeah. flow, ease? And I think the answer I gave that time, it's 33%. And he said, if you're great, it's 70%. And during Big Machines, if right
1: now you'd rather be doing nothing but this, and this is everything, and you're redlining at a third happiness, at Big Machines, what would you say retrospectively that number was?
0: Price. Price. Half of that, 16.7%. One-sixth, you know, one-third now. And
1: then what about when you were in between business ventures? You're a golfer. You're working on your golf game. You joined the country club. Where would you say that was?
0: Probably about a sixth. But I also think even Percent. now when I'm not happy, like I had as missing the sense of purpose. Yeah. And so now I would say, you know, even I'm the 67% and when I go below the line, as I say in country leadership, when I'm kind of like angry, not happy, I can always shift back to, but I'm doing this, like, it's what I'm meant to do. I'm doing it for a purpose. You're saying you're 33% happy. Like where I'm truly like zone, zone. flow, like loving it. Yeah. And I think the other 67% is also much better. Totally. Like the watermark is raised. And I'm able to shift out of it. You know, I no longer, because I think during my big machines days, it just felt so overwhelming when I was in the muck. Like, I would, like, turn to things like drinking too much, eating too much. I was, like, stuffing my anxiety with unhealthy things. And I think that I almost never do anymore. Yeah and your coach said the
1: benchmark is 70% from his experience.
0: Yes, like and I think he, and he's doing work on it himself. He's like now in northern Michigan, like lives in this very zen place. I think he would say he's at 70% and he's been you know working on it a lot longer than I have.
1: Let's get to G2 if I may. I think the easiest way to describe this company is that it's Yelp for B2B software. Yes. You raised 255 million dollars most recently at 1.1 billion. What was the last raise? That was about a year ago. Okay. It um, has over 1.6 million reviews. Five million tech buyers every month are on the platform.
0: Has it been humbling starting the fourth one at this point again? There are a lot of humbling moments. And I think that's always true in entrepreneurship, right? Just when you think you've figured out you haven't. I think one of the biggest ones for G2 was end of 99, beginning of 2000, like in terms of humbling moments. Because we did go back, and then first thing we did was like raise more money, like Jules, IVP, our former investors, Emergence, they all wanted to invest again because Steelwork was a great run. So at the beginning, when I kind of came back to it, it seemed really easy for a while, and we were just going fast, acquired new companies. And I remember like beginning of COVID, all of a sudden, it was like, oh shit, like we're kind of screwed again. I remember like I think March, April, when COVID was starting in 2020, and like all of a sudden, I remember there was like, all of a sudden we went from growing, like we had a quarter where we didn't grow our ARR at all because all of a sudden, yeah, we were serving all these software marketers. Now we have over 3,000 customers, all these SaaS cloud vendors. And there was tremendous fear in the world at the beginning of the pandemic, right? And there was a quarter where all of a sudden so many of our customers started canceling. We weren't able to grow at all. And our plan was, you know, to double. And meanwhile, we had a quarter of like flat ARR. And so all of a sudden it was like, oh man, back to reality very quickly. And we adapted and luckily a quarter later we're back to growth but like very quickly at that moment where you kind of feel like you're getting kicked again
1: (laughs) do you ever have flashbacks now to 20 years ago have those scabs healed
0: i think they have and now what i have and i just talking to our team about this all hands meeting yesterday you know because i think people have fear but i think the one advantage of getting older now i'm 51 i've seen enough of these cycles and I've lived them. And I'm also an optimist, but I know they always end. We've survived all these crises. We've always come out of them stronger. And so now I think it's just that perspective that I think you only gain with age, where now it just doesn't feel that existential, like I'm going to die. And even for the company, like I know we're going to get through this stronger ultimately. So I think now having perspective, age, experience, and I think the conscious work, while I still get the jolts of fear and adrenaline, and what Jim says, if you feel any feeling to completion, extreme sadness, anger, it, after a minute it dissipates. Unless you block it, you don't face it, and then the waves live on for years. And so now I kind of enjoy it, and you can see the opportunity in it, you know, even in the more challenging times.
1: But in the run-up over the last, let's call it 2019, to, let's say 2020, 2021... Did you ever have moments of where you're like, oh no, our burn, are we growing too fast? Or did it feel like you've learned those lessons from the past a little bit?
0: Yeah, I mean, you definitely get to similar feelings. I remember like end of 2019, we started like missing. But I do think I now just have that perspective where I can shift out of it, you know, and get to action much more quickly. So I would say yes, but also know, and that's where I think I would really encourage, I wish I'd started doing this consciousness work earlier because with greater awareness, I think the jolts are just much shorter, you know? Because I think that the worst part to me wasn't the moments, but just that it dragged on, like that the fear anxiety lived on for so many years. I think that's what was horrible about it.
1: Are you gonna keep going? Let's imagine like, Benioff calls you again, Godard, we're going to buy you. Offers too good for the cap table, for your employees, for you to not sell. Is there any world in which you do not get back on the horse for number five again?
0: I will definitely stay involved in entrepreneurship. But what I could see is right now, I don't know if I'm going to be the CEO again. Why not? I don't know yet. But I, what I am loving doing, like my Big Machines co-founder now, I'm helping him. He's the CEO of a new company, Logic IO. He's building another one, but there I'm the chairman, investor, helping him. And I have started angel investing, invested in about 50 companies. So I could also see myself maybe becoming more like Jim Dethmer, maybe becoming more the coach and helping entrepreneurs succeed, deal with this anxiety, grow, rather than doing it myself again, you know, beyond G2. I'm
1: looking forward to watching it. Okay. Are you hiring for G2? If so, what are you hiring for?
0: We are. Biggest need right now as a data science leader. Okay. That's a good one. Can they just reach out to you on LinkedIn if they're listening? Yeah, LinkedIn or godart at g2.com. Last question. What does grit mean to you? means perseverance. And I am proud that we didn't quit. And we lived at a big machine, right? Like, we're going to make this work no matter what. And adapting and ultimately succeeding. I do think it's very gratifying. And I think grit is the strength to suffer, persevere, and ultimately succeed and deliver for yourself, but for everyone involved. I think it does feel so amazing when you persevere, you go through the hard times. That's ultimately, I think, what makes it so rewarding.
1: Super special, man. Appreciate your candor. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback. So feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.